Hi, this is Arij Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Talia Dram Butler is a social worker, educator and proud Durumbal, Kalili and Yidinji woman. She's been working on what it looks like to decolonise social work and I'm really excited to have her on the show this morning to tell us all about it. Talia, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Areej. So I've been thinking a lot about social work, other kind of not-for-profit type work that isn't necessarily, you know, government work, that isn't necessarily to do with the prison system directly or, you know, the really kind of explicit experiences that different communities have that could be negative, especially the healthcare system. And it is in many ways difficult to be critical of, you know, health workers, social workers, because really the role seems to be one that is of altruism and it's just like everything about it is positive. But to many, social workers can be the first people who fail them. What's the relationship, do you think, between First Nations people and social workers and that kind of history? in this country? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think, you know, it's important to say that social work, the profession of social work is not separate to society. It's not, you know, separate to the policies and the spirit of the time. So I think it's important to look at the relationships between First Nations people and white Australians more broadly. And with that, to consider the ways that racism is embedded in every system which touches our lives and then to consider social work as a function of that. But I think that it's difficult to talk about social work as a profession and to be critical of that because I agree with you. You know, we have the skill set to change systems. For many people, social workers are the first people who do them right, are Mm -hmm. the first people who listen to them, are the first people who can change people's lives and, in fact, save people's lives. But, you know, as well as any profession, any kind of community worker, you're right that there can be cases when we are the first people that fail them. I consider social work in this broader context and how many of us have come about, come to do social work. And I guess that, you know, we have to consider who's had access to university and that to a large extent social work has been created through a lens of of whiteness and colonialism. And so I think that, you know, the legacy of social workers participating in policies, including the stolen generation, this is certainly something that I see in my work, that when I introduce myself as a social worker, all too often there's this instant look that crosses people's face or, you know, they'll they'll overtly say that they don't want to see a social worker because of this legacy of our link to child removal. And this was a policy and a practice of the day, generally overall, and social workers were also a part of doing that. But First Nations people, Aboriginal people, have over 230-year history of resisting colonialism and I guess of also resisting the practices that, in many cases, social workers were doing as part of this system. And I think now that for many, when I think about that question, I still think about social workers who work within the child protection system because I think that this, it's where it all comes to a head in a way that, you know, the, the policies and, and the, the sentiments that sit under that and the ways that that racism is embedded in every system is still very much practiced within 
child protection systems. We see this through the growing rate of Aboriginal children who are in out-of-home care. But I also think that it's important not to not to blame social work as a as a profession for that because the system is the problem. And I think it can be easy for people to do this. It's largely a woman-led workforce and therefore is often at kind of the interface of people suffering. But keep in mind that that it's the system that needs to be changed, I think is really important to kind of hold closely. Yeah. And it is amazing because I think that, you know, a lot of people's relationships with social workers might fall or with social work full stop might fall because the people who are working are upholding these systems, right? It's not that, you know, it is a role that in every sense should be for the betterment of a client or society or communities or families or children or whatever, whoever it might be. But upholding these systems, as you said, is probably where the the problems might lie for those who've had those difficult experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, our role and our our teaching within our in our social work learning is to constantly question this dominant paradigm. And this paradigm serves to maintain the status quo. Um, and so, you know, our our function should be to question this more broadly. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, were you going to say something? I, uh, I was just going to say as well, though, that, um, you know, I think that because I've been asked this question before, what are the problems between social work and First Nations people? Yeah. Um, it can, you know, people go in kind of to a, a problem approach. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to note that often people consider social work as synonymous with white, that social workers are white people. I mean, certainly in Indigenous Allied Health Australia, which I'm a member of, there's more than 150 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social workers. So there's lots of people doing lots of work as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm African. My family's African. My mum's a social worker and her best friend's a social worker. And so it's really amazing to have this conversation with you because I think a lot about, you know, her work day to day. And, you know, she is a really amazing social worker and a really, you know, strong woman who works really hard and tries to advocate for her clients all the time. And, you know, particularly working from home, I've just been hearing her on the phone for this whole year, just listening to her advocate for her clients. And sometimes she is kind of like back against a wall you know and feels well the sense that I get just from listening to her is that you know she has to really advocate very strongly for her clients in a way and it's not necessarily as easy as the system could allow it to be. Absolutely (laughs) I think you know sometimes people will say to me that it seems as though the system is stacked against them and I wholeheartedly agree with that and so you know that is our skill set to be able to support people to navigate systems and therefore to influence that systemic change. In terms of, like, training, right, and education, what are the problems maybe, or maybe not problems, but how are the ways that social work is taught that can either change or what can we really focus on to ensure that, like, social work students who will eventually be the ones in the workforce are given all of the skills or equipped with all of the skills to maybe do the best possible work for all communities? Yeah, and, you know, I guess, I mean, my experience in education is through narrative therapy Mm -hmm. and including the Masters in Narrative Therapy and Community Work through the University of Melbourne. In terms of social work education, I did mine a bit over 17 years ago. Probably a lot has changed, I hope. Not to say I had a completely terrible experience, but... You know, certainly the University of Melbourne School of Social Work, I really feel is moving towards putting words into action, really following through with 
processes that can invite Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think that's one of the areas where there needs to be improvement. My son recently started studying social work and I didn't feel that there was enough to invite him in and to invite him to shape what he was learning through his own worldview. But certainly the University of Melbourne has been wonderful with the Masters of Narrative Therapy program and at really including the politics which underpin narrative practice and therefore supporting a, a learning environment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that is towards a decolonised educational experience. And honestly, it's been such an experience for me to go through you know, I guess all of my schooling and university and to just know so clearly what a colonised educational experience is and then how it's happening with the Masters of Narrative Therapy program through the University of Melbourne. I think there are just so many learnings that can be, you know, taught through that through that program. Mm. But I go back to what I remember about my early social work education and what has always stood out to me is the politicising of what we do. And, you know, I think that this is one of the most important things that we can continue to do and update that, of course, but to work out how, what are the systems of power that are always at play and how can we as social workers, you know, really practically moving from theory to practice and how can we influence that? Mm. You mentioned narrative therapy. What is it and why does something like narrative therapy work? Yes, narrative therapy is a way to understand and talk about our identities through stories and to tell these stories, these problem stories, as separate to us Mm -hmm. so that, you know, our identity is separate to the problem. And it's a practice which centres people as the experts in their lives through attending to these processes of power that I mentioned. I think the best explanation of what it is is through Arnie Barb Wingard's words which is telling our stories in ways that make us stronger. Mm. But I think that in my experience, when we're inviting people to tell these stories of the ways that they are always responding to problems, so we're hearing stories which are outside of the problem, we're able to support people to draw on their own knowledge and the knowledge of their family, of their community, of their ancestors. And I think that moving away from the idea that of that professional discourse, whether it's social workers, doctors, psychologists, whatever helping profession it is, moving away from the discourse that we have to be the all-knowing experts, because we don't. People are certainly the experts on their lives and therefore on the problems that shape their lives. And in terms of, you know, thinking about something like narrative therapy, it feels almost the opposite of what might be taught or what might be expected or upheld by the systems because often, you know, decisions are made on behalf of people and sometimes they're not really even properly part, particularly when it comes to child protection, which has been Mm. a really kind of problematic experience for many people. Decisions are made on their behalf and they're not even necessarily consulted in a meaningful way about what is going to happen for their future and the future of their children. So this just seems like a completely different way to approach things. It is. It is and it isn't. Mm. <laughs> because I think definitely systems, it's new to systems, but people practice this in their lives all the time. People talk amongst their families about the ways that problems push them around. It's often when we kind of get involved in 
sort of medical processes that these problems start to get pathologised and individualised. So I think it's the politics of the practice and the importance of accountability within that can help us to, when we're in our work environments and, you know, we are talking about people's lives who are not there, Mm. there's practices of accountability that we can hold to ourselves, that we can ask questions, we can use people's stories to, I guess, get a point across and an, an experience across. So... I think it's a really important practice and and a really helpful one that goes in partnership with social work. Narrative therapy doesn't only belong to social workers and psychologists and so forth, but it certainly is a good fit for social work practice. Talia, you say to decolonise social work, we must talk about land rights. Tell me about that relationship. Yeah, so I think when we're talking about anything, not just social work, we have to consider it in the broadest of context. And I really resonated with Eve Tuck's description that decolonisation is not a metaphor, that it's not as though we can just use the word or do a couple of practices and consider that our practice or our service is decolonised, that we have to go on the broadest of settings. And, you know, Aboriginal people have been saying this for many, many years, that we have to go back to the start and engage in that truth-telling and address the ways that Australia has been settled and that this society has been built on that. The Uluru Statement of the Heart, and I'm certainly not an expert in that, but that's the start. You know, we've had an opportunity of kind of where to start, and as a nation, we didn't take that opportunity. But I think in terms of social work, healing is connected to the land, certainly for Aboriginal people, but I think more broadly... This perhaps applies to all of us. We're all affected by the current state of the planet and we need to move to... When I did my social work education, we always talked about this paradigm shift. We never actually said what the paradigm to shift to is because we don't need to recreate that. First Nations people have had this in place for thousands of years. And I think that social workers have this skill in looking at systems, in finding faults in systems, and therefore influencing change within these systems. So when we're talking about decolonising, we have to start locally with individuals, families, communities, but also thinking globally and thinking that this has to be connected to that broadest of contexts. Decolonisation is not a metaphor. That is a really strong and active statement because, you know, sometimes things do become buzzwords and it's really hard to kind of reclaim and, and re-own what the heart of what it is that is being said. We never want something like decolonisation to become a euphemism for something else, for, you know, like Absolutely. equality or whatever whatever words people yeah. use because it actually does yeah. mean something and it means something really yeah, big. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And in our practice, solidarity is not a feeling, it's mm. an action. Yeah. And so I guess when we're holding that value of decolonisation in the broadest of contexts, How can we be doing that as action? How can we be doing solidarity towards that as an action and to be making sure that the right people are in positions of decision-making power? Yeah. I want to ask you, what drew you to social work to begin with? Yeah, I've always had a, a sense of justice and I guess within my family there is a value of justice and service to community and I've got Lots of family members that work in and around the health system. We often joke that we could start a a health service ourselves. (laughs) But I've always seen social work as a vehicle to engage in 
in systemic change. I'm really happy with the work that I do now and I think that working with individuals and families as community change, you know, doing that broader systemic change one-on-one with people I think is, yeah, probably what what drew me to social work, but I say that in retrospect. And, <laughs> yeah, I think it was just something that was kind of encouraged through through my family. Yeah. And in terms of what you want to see for the future of social work in this country, what is like one thing that you want to see in the future and the way that we engage with social work, but also the way social work is positioned in our society? That's an interesting question, and I don't know the entire breadth and depth of the work that's already being done to, I guess, change the profession. I know that there's a lot of work that continues to be done. I think there's an increasing number of First Nations social workers that are graduating. And, and as I said, through Indigenous Allied Health Australia or IHA, there's, there's lots of members who are social work and they all practice from a very politicised framework. I think that that would be the point, though, is to you know, increase the numbers of First Nations social workers and social workers from other cultural backgrounds so that we're moving away from where social work is thought of as a white profession. Mm -hmm. But I think to do that, it's not just about saying, yeah, come and do this. It's got to be active. And as I said, I think that through the Masters of Narrative Therapy, the University of Melbourne has done that where they're not just saying, come and do this there's actually steps in place that encourage people to come, that make it possible for people to engage in the learning and that then support people to deconstruct the learning and then reconstruct it through their own worldview rather than saying, here's the learning, learn it, and then just work it out for yourself. I think that that would be kind of the important step, which is happening. Talia, it has been such a joy to chat with you. I've learned so much and your perspective is so valuable. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Areej. Great to talk to you. Talia Dram-Butler is a social worker, educator and proud Durrumbul and Kulili and Yinji woman. She's been working on what it looks like to decolonise social work and you can read a piece she's featured in on the University of Melbourne's Pursuit magazine. It's called Decolonising Social Work. Triple R. I will be speaking right now to another Triple R broadcaster, the man, the myth, the legend, Samira, who, uh, who, presents, who presents Travelling Light but also fills in on this show, also did a whole week as a fake faster, which, you know, we, we did speak about. I gave her some advice at about Wednesday and was like, now you're about to crash and it all came true. She's also, an arts, came true. she's also an arts producer and a whole heap of other things. How are you? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling like I'm ready for a nice long break, which, you know, makes sense because today's my last show of the year. But also I've got a little bit of separation anxiety because I feel like if, you know, and this is, I would only say this to you and everyone who's listening, if there were ever to be another lockdown in Melbourne, coming on and doing this show was definitely my, like, attachment yeah, to like sanity. Yeah, like routine. Exactly. So yeah. I was really nervous with saying, oh, no, I do need a break, just in case we get another lockdown <laughs> and then I can't leave the house for any reason. So, you know. Yeah, let's never let's never say the L word again. Never. Let's hope that's behind us. I've yeah. actually stopped listening. There's two songs that are called, you know, the L word, and I've actually taken them off my playlist because I can't. I think, that's for, I think that's for the best. Yeah, I can't. I just, I don't want to bring myself back to that. 
that time of my life. So I'm ringing you today because I want to speak with you on the last show of the year about the 50 million things that have happened in 2020. And there's been so much that has happened, so many experiences that we've had that's all kind of just molded into one long day, like this whole year has just been one long day. And we haven't even really scratched the surface on this show, at least, on all of the different things that have happened. We haven't been able to unpack them in a way that will help me process it. So I've got you on the show today to do it with me now. (laughs) (laughs) In like 15 minutes, we're going to process 2020. That's exactly what we're going to do. So we've picked a few different things, some serious, but also others that might be a little bit more for me personally, like Indian Matchmaker was something that was so important in my life that I didn't touch on. So it would be really nice to chat with you about it. But I think the kind of the biggest one besides COVID is Black Lives Matter. Like I think for you, I guess when that movement really took place or reignited in the US this year, what were you thinking about and what were you looking out for in that time? seems so long ago now. I think I remember at this particular time I was working on like this art project and like it was really intense and I was doing work with you and obviously like I think for me when I look back on it one of my main takeaways is around the city of Minneapolis and obviously being of like Somali background how that intersected with the Somali community in Minneapolis and with George Floyd and the riots and still today like I'm thinking about the images of the riots there and Mm -hmm. how that feels like as someone of the Somali diaspora and oftentimes the conversations around Black Lives Matter or around these movements we don't necessarily always think about African diasporas within that like it's Mm -hmm. often a very kind of like obviously it's an American movement but it's been interesting kind of being able to see how all these groups intersect, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's kind of where I was at as well, to be honest with you. My first thoughts were in the same vein. I was thinking about Minneapolis because there's a huge... You know, Minnesota, it's a huge Somali diaspora. I remember I landed in the airport for a stopover once and every single staff member in the airport (laughs) was either Somali or Eritrean specifically, like the people who were cleaning, the person I bought my bagel from, like everyone. And I was like, where am I? I just... What is this place? And so that's, you know, I guess as it's only natural for us to connect with what is the most familiar to us. I thought a lot about, when I was thinking about Black Lives Matter, I thought a whole lot, particularly at the beginning, about the entire African gang's rhetoric and what it meant for that election year to get the Labour Party up and into power was really that overwhelming need to criminalise young Africans and visibly racialize young African boys in particular and thinking about like what BLM means, what, what mm. Black Lives Matter actually means, right? Like as yeah. a movement, we can think about what is actually being said and yeah. then we can think about policy and what is actually being said. And that's, you know, where yeah. my, yeah, where my head yeah. went out. I think, I think also for me, like looking back on it as someone who does work in the art, I think this year's kind of reignition of Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives was so interesting because of the fact that so many brands and institutions felt as if this was the time they either had to say something or mm. they were implicated. So, you know, you had the, what was it again? Was it the black screens, the black little logos that all the brands were doing, all the conversations that institutions were having mm. around black people, around diversity. It was really mm. interesting, I think, as black people, when the issue at hand is around police and brutality and violence, for it to then kind of have been co-opted into this very interesting direction of, like, institutionalised 
representation. Yes, absolutely. Which, so I feel like that's something that I've taken away from 2020 in terms of what was happening in that in the in our winter, but obviously in the US summer. Yeah, it's it, you know that's really true. Like it was a conversation. You're right about police brutality and police violence and racial profiling, all of that stuff. And then it ended up being like a, a euphemism for diversity. And suddenly mm. BLM just meant like let's have a more diverse workplace. Or you know, I was watching Channel 10 for some reason and. There was a lot of, there was like an ad every like five minutes that was just like a black screen and it just was like, you know, Channel 10 acknowledges, BLM acknowledges First Nations people, acknowledges black people in Australia, this and that. And I thought, what does that, what do you mean? What what does that mean, guys? What are you trying to say? And then, of course... There was a runtime, and that and that ended, and we don't see it anymore because you Not know BLM is over. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also really interesting because obviously, very shortly after we had the lockdowns in the yeah. public housing set against the backdrop of what was just happening with Black Lives Matter, and you obviously were involved quite heavily in that. So I think another big takeaway for me that I'm still processing is what happened in those flats. Yeah. It's, yeah, 100%. I'm still kind of in the process of processing and I'm not even, I wasn't even, I didn't even live there, you know what I mean? Still talking to some family members, you know, all of the Year 12 students have now finished school and they're, you know, I remember mid-year we were running around trying to work out how we can get special consideration for these kids who were clearly traumatised and, and locked up in those towers and now they're, they're, they've finished school officially. Like my little cousin's finished school. She's just turned 18 and thinking about what, that period was for them and the fact that it's over. My brother went to see or hung out with some of our cousins and some of the boys and he said that, you know, they were saying, you know, I can't believe that that happened. Like this was such a a huge thing to happen to us. The media was all over this, you know, these communities. There was just so much going on. The whole focus of the state was on these, you know, public housing towers made up of 3,000 people and there was and it was a focus for two weeks there were press conferences about it there was you know walkthroughs by commissioners and and all of that and and residents that I've spoken to in in the last little while are like and my brother also spoken to are like I cannot believe that is a thing that really happened and I think when you're in the middle of it and when you're in the midst of trying to process what's going on and when things are changing and trying to help things along and support residents and and all of that stuff you don't necessarily think about the bigger picture of what actually has happened and also what precedent it might set and also maybe if at some point there will be an acknowledgement of of failure or or something. Yeah absolutely and I think also as someone who's not from Melbourne I'm from Sydney it's always been very interesting to me what the flats represent to people here. It's almost like a when you were introducing me as, you know, the Mr. Legend. I kind of feel like that about the flats sometimes, the way that non-residents speak of the people and the flats and the way that, let's say, in community services where I somewhat work, people just have this really mythological mm-hmm. ideas towards the people that doesn't necessarily reflect anything that has anything to do with the people inside. Yeah. Yeah. It's very bizarre. I still think it's something that I'm processing with this year. Yeah, that's really accurate, though, because I think I somehow found myself in some of these meetings of the Department of Health and Human Services and all of these different kind of emergency services institutions. And really, you're right. Thinking about what is being said behind closed doors about communities is like, I don't know who you think you're talking about. These are, you know, (laughs) this is not an accurate depiction of who these Mm. communities are, but also you're making your job harder by making all of these assumptions instead of just asking. And that is a big part of 
thinking, you know, us chatting today and talking about processing, obviously there's no way that we're going to process all of this stuff by the end of this chat, but thinking about like how big some of this stuff really is because housing is huge in Victoria and around the country and thinking about what does it mean to have secure housing for people in this state and seeing the cracks in that system was how that manifested in this moment, I reckon will be something to be, you know, researched for years to come. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to talk really briefly. I was in isolation for a couple of weeks after all that stuff in the flats and that was when I watched Indian Matchmaker. (laughs) And I know know that you and your housemate and our friend Iman also watched it. My mum and my auntie also watched it. And I felt like it was a moment that happened. There were like a couple of, you know, think pieces and then it was over. What drew you to that show? And tell us maybe a little bit about it. Firstly, I want to say that this year obviously has been... I'm not really a big television watcher or like a Netflix watcher, but this year obviously I have started to watch so many things that I wouldn't have watched before. And even thinking about not just Indian Matchmaker, like this year was the year of Tiger King. Yes! You know, it was also also the year of something that I haven't thought about in a while, The Last Dance, which was the Michael Jordan documentary, which I also watched, which is a really amazing... It's just... A lot has happened in terms of television and what we all consume together because you have to kind of just be at home and watch stuff. Indian Matchmaker obviously speaks to me and I would say to like my housemate Iman and stuff because one, it has very similarities like Indian communities with our kind of communities. Mm -hmm. A lot of our communities and our mums and our kind of dads watch Bollywood like or like, you know, Indian dramas, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously it was interesting to watch and then the fact that it was around romance and love which you don't necessarily see on Netflix coming from like a non-white perspective so I was already hooked right I was already hooked before I even saw the trailer then watching it I guess it was just kind of interesting because it had for those who didn't watch it it's pretty much exactly like the title Indian Matchmaker it is a lady who is based in India I think it's in Mumbai, yeah. who is highly sought after Indian matchmaker. She's quite traditional. She's quite conservative. They have this thing. What do they call them again? They don't They don't call them like profiles. It was a really Yes, it was a term. really scientific term. Yes, I'm going to find oh, it. Yes, yeah, I I'm going to find it. Oh, it was just, it was like a call sheet or something, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. And it has, oh, biodata. Biodata. The biodata. Bio yes. <laughs> and it just has people's like age, religions, and yeah. like ethnicities. A photo their of work, them. Photo, their work. Divorce, not divorced. Not divorced. <laughs> children, and no children. <laughs> children, no children. Preferences, etc. And then she would basically meet up with these people and then try and find matches for them. What I liked about it was that it was set both in India and the U.S., mm-hmm. which I thought gave it a really interesting diaspora angle to see what like Indian Americans versus, I guess, Indians based in India were looking for. Very problematic, obviously. <laughs> like a lot of has been written about like the casteness. Mm. The colorism issues around the show, very conservative ideas about women and roles. All of those are correct. I just watched it because sometimes you just have to switch off. I loved it. I actually really like agree with all of that stuff. And I guess you and I are not from the Indian community, so you yeah. know, take and all of this with a grain of salt. But I love, you know, all of the, it was very like heteronormative. It was very, 100%, like, yeah. it was super colorist, all of that stuff. Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, it was real, right? Like it just felt quite real and realistic and some of the stuff that the amazing auntie matchmaker was saying was whack but it's stuff that you and I have both heard like in yeah. our, within our extended families like there's no way that that stuff isn't 
untrue. One element that really resonated for me and thinking about what it means for my community specifically was there was this one woman in there who was both, you know, who's of the Indian diaspora, but she was from Guyana, I think. I think she was uh, Guyanese. Yes, Guyana. There yes. were the Indian Caribbean community. One. That was a really fascinating storyline. Absolutely. And thinking about like, you know, there are, you know, Africans also have that kind of diaspora. Mentality. Yeah. yeah, mentality, but also we have this diaspora that's around the world. So there's continental Africans and, you know, slavery, colonization has really done a number on so many of, of our countries around the world. But, you know, there are different experiences and expressions. And at the end of the day, you are, you might have the same bloodline or whatever, but your lived experiences are different and your culture is different, but also your perception and how you're perceived as well is quite different. And I found that to be such a, like, thoughtful plot line or maybe not a plot line as an actual woman but like a really thoughtful moment in that to kind of remind people of you know you can talk about caste you can talk about colorism you can talk about class but you also have to talk about what that means in the context of you know migration movement yeah. colonization slavery and and how people are impacted by all of these things 40, 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 years on. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I think her name was, I think her name was Nadia. Yeah. So Nadia is of Indian heritage, but raised, they were born, I think, in yeah, Guyana mm-hmm. for like 200 years. Yeah. And like, yeah, so her storyline was that it was hard for her to date in the US because most Indian families wanted someone directly linked back to India and yeah. not via indigenous. It's, it's yeah, indentured. Labor, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I think it was they were indentured workers. I don't know if it was enslavement, but they were they were yeah. forcibly moved from India to work in colonies. It's the British. Yeah, you know, they really love to do that. Well, it's just so interesting because, yeah, like you said, we also have that kind of line mm-hmm. of thinking and ideas within the African diaspora, depending on where you're from. But I, I guess it wasn't something that I had seen like within another community, yeah. so the Indian community, being kind of revealed on television, which is really fascinating to yeah. watch. It also kind of just shows you the devastatingly far reach of British colonialism, to be honest with yeah. you, which is, you know, kind of sucky, but also it was amazing to be yeah. seen in that way. I mean, for me, it's really interesting, like Indian matchmaker, and right now, I'm so sorry, I hate to admit it, we're watching another thing called like The Fabulous Wife of Bollywood. <laughs> it's really just bad. But I've noticed this really big trend on Netflix, obviously kind of accumulating and acquiring content from the Indian continent, subcontinent, but also Africa. So there's a lot more like Nigerian yes. films yeah. on Netflix. On also, Korean. also Korean. Also Korean. Yeah. And it's really, really great on one hand, right, obviously to have this like exposure to other content. But on the other hand, it really does raise questions of like what images are being highlighted from these places that don't necessarily correspond with what's what's happening, but also whose voices get to be on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's still the most privileged people, right, from those countries. Yeah. Of course. Whose voice? Yeah. Who is curating this? What perception is this, like, as you said, sending but also, I think it's who's the audience for this? Who do you yeah, want to enjoy this? this? Yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely interesting. I mean, I've also been enjoying some Indian. I watched a Turkish movie as well, and it's in Korean here and there. And it's, I will not lie, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. But also, we live in Melbourne. We live in the West. And I don't know anything about all of these other cultures. So you're absolutely right. It's something to think about. Yeah. Another sad moment for 2020, and one that I haven't processed very much, and you and I have spoken about it here and there, but we're both like, this is too sad, I don't want to talk about it anymore, was the loss of Chadwick Boseman, who played lots of really amazing stories and amazing characters across film for a few years and was really at the height of his career. I really think he was at the the height like of his career before passing away 
from cancer a bit earlier this year. And also just thinking about the impact of that loss. I've just thought a lot about it and the other day it was his birthday and there was, you know, social media, if you follow enough black celebrities, social media was just in mourning again almost. Yeah. I mean, I think with the chat with one, because it was just so unexpected, like none of us really knew that he had cancer, you know, there were images that had come, I think maybe last year where he was looking thin, but people just assumed that maybe he was getting ready for a film. And then yet when he did pass away, it was just so unexpected as someone who has watched a number of his films and obviously Black Panther, which I watched several times now. With my son, and then after his death, we watched it again. I think I was in Sydney at the time. And then we watched it again. We watched the Avengers again. It was just such a outpouring of, like... Yeah, I remember messaging you. It was so hard to kind of describe when someone you don't know, like a celebrity dies. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you felt such a connection to this person and what they've done, what they did. It's like... I feel like the last time I felt this way was when Whitney died. Mm. Whitney really was such a... And Prince. Yeah. Both those deaths were such shocking deaths to me. They were so young, you know, both, I think, in, like, early 50s. Yeah. I think also with black people, the way that we mourn is so public. Yeah. Like, it's, it's very public mourning on social media where everyone kind of gets together and does it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's been hard. That one was really hard. It was really hard. I'm thinking about like the impact of a film like Black Panther. I know I've said this. I think I said this on this show or I've said it in other conversations. Like I would have killed for a film like that when I was really young because particularly when you don't – a film like that to be really popular. And, yes, you know, we don't like huge big film productions and big Hollywood blockbusters and stuff, but that's the way of the world (laughs) at the moment. And I think that kind of legitimising our – not just us, but our continent – was such and and really giving it so much beauty and grace and richness and power was such a beautiful representation. It's not about black exceptionalism or African exceptionalism. It's about, you know, us as being celebrated and celebrating ourselves. One thing that I, I thought a lot about when it came to Chadwick passing was how private the whole thing was. And I felt so kind of, had so much pride in the way that it was handled. Not to say that if you're public about something that, that that's not good, but mm. the, the capacity to keep such a big thing between the, like, the people who are very closely involved. And sometimes we forget when it comes to celebrity culture that actually people do have the right to do that. And and the fact that he was able and his family was able to achieve that was such like a big moment. I remember when I found out, I was like, I'm so sad that I didn't know, but I'm also really happy that I didn't find out or it wasn't leaked or you know what I mean? Because sometimes we become a little bit too attached and a little too entitled. And this redrew some boundaries again when it came to... That is such a good point. Yeah. I think it really, yeah, it really did do that. I'm just sad now. I'm just sad now too. So let's like, you know, we're going to hit two more points and then I'm going to let you go. I just want to talk a little bit about your show, Travelling Light. Tell me a little bit about it and how it's been for you putting it together on Triple R. So, yeah, so Travelling Light is one of those pop-up shows that Triple R is doing in light of the pandemic and obviously the graveyard shift shows not being possible with all the movements in and out of the station. Mm-hmm. So Travelling Light is a show that I do. It's been a bit of a roller coaster, obviously. <laughs> like most people, I've had good days and I've had bad days. Some days he's just haven't been feeling it, I'll be very honest. So the show itself is about jazz musicians and blues musicians. And I kind of try and take one person per show, look at maybe one or two albums and talk about their lives and the music, mainly because I'm a bit of a history nerd. And you know that. Mm-hmm. I like I like archives, I like history, I like learning about other people. But it's also been a way for me to kind of find lesser-known people who I feel 
didn't get their dues and then kind of presenting them back again. One interesting thing about the show so far is I often end with like the last years of a person's life. And it's actually been really, I know it's sad. Oh my God, I'm going to get sad again. How many black artists in particular die really, really young or they die very much without any of their dues until they've passed and and like 20 years later. Some mm-hmm. DJ finds them, mm-hmm. no disrespect to DJs, but some DJs yeah. find them again and they're back in the news, but it's all connected to the DJ and not to the artist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting show. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy learning about it. I think it's as much as for me learning about music as it is for me showing music to other people and playing it. But, yeah, it's, it's been good. It's been interesting. It is. It's such a good show. And, you know, I remember you got a message to the Still Nomads Instagram page from a really lovely listener <laughs> who is clearly like an insomniac or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> saying, oh, my God, I love this show. I really look forward to it every fortnight. Like, or it's just the best thing ever. And I remember looking at that and sending it to you and saying, look, you've got fans. They may be up. They might maybe night owls, <laughs> maybe up all hours of the night doing woodwork or whatever, painting, whatever this person yeah. is doing. I mean, triple tri- R listeners are beautiful listeners. They are. Absolutely, yeah. And the last thing I want to talk with you about before I let you go is what it has been like maintaining, keeping, consolidating, creating friendships in this time of COVID. I think, you know, you and I have been in a long distance relationship since the beginning of our friendship. (laughs) Um, This is not new to us. It's very easy for us to do this, but it then, you know, it's because you've lived in Sydney and I've lived in Melbourne and now you're in Melbourne and you've kind of been coming and going. But it's another level of difficulty when it's not just one friend that you're doing the long distance thing with, but all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually found it really hard to balance it and felt really exhausted and thought to myself, like, I, I don't know how to do this. How did I do this in normal times? Like, how did I, you know, expect myself to be able to do this? How did you navigate it all? I mean, it was hard, just like you're saying. I think in the beginning it was a bit like, you know, that excitement at the beginning. It's like, oh, you know, Zoom parties and yeah. online House party. And then, oh. and then the house party. That needed to oh go. That went 15 minutes after it was downloaded. <laughs> Sorry. That was that was gone in a day. Yeah. I think it's just also just like accepting that we're all going through something and mm. so not feeling too anxious about necessarily always connecting to everyone all the time and also just respecting that some people are going through the same thing and maybe they don't check in as much as they used to, but it's fine. I actually think coming out of it has been just as challenging because yes. I think a lot of people we're still kind of in our own little bubbles in wherever we live and then even though you can meet up again I, I do think that for a lot of people that I know there is a bit of social anxiety about going out again yeah. or meeting up again in large groups so I feel like I still haven't seen all of my friends yet it's a very slow process I think it's just taking time yeah you know just accepting it and taking time and being gentle with it and not like kicking yourself over the fact that maybe you haven't kept up with everybody yeah I feel the same yeah. way, yeah. This kind of re, like, acclimatisation or something yeah. has been a process. Like, we saw each other last week for the first time yeah. in such a long time. I just, and, I mean, Imana, my husband, she said something that's really, like, correct. She said it's going to take, like, two or three months to even have topics to talk about 100%. that aren't pandemic-related. So, three months. <laughs> yeah, three months. I'll catch you all in three months. Samira, yeah, okay, I'll see you guys in three months. It has been so much fun chatting with you. It always is fun to chat with you. We talk all the time anyway, but it's nice to do this. It is a on... pleasure to talk to you as always, Rich. <laughs> I love the rap. I love your show. Thank Whoever you. gets to host it for the next couple of weeks is very lucky. The best show. 
Thank you. It has been so much fun as always. Good luck in Sydney and good luck with all of, you know, having to do the rest of the year and be social with all of these people. I know I'll be texting you every single day as I do all the time. But have a good rest of your day. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next Thank time. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. For now, though, we've got Seafrim on the line. Seafrim is a what? Melbourne. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> what's up, sis? How are you? I'm all right. I'm okay. It's my last show of the year. I'm feeling good about it, but I'm also thinking about what the hell I'm going to do for the time that I've taken off. So, oh, you know. I feel that. <laughs> Congratulations on a such Thank a you. good show. Thank Always you. tuning in. Thank you. So, Seafrim is a Melbourne based DJ, and to me personally, probably voted most likely to have me booty shaking wherever she's playing. <laughs> last guest of the year. This, last, you were also my last guest of the year last year, except we could do it in person. And you've also put together a really beautiful mix for us that I am yet to listen to and will be listening to alongside everyone else. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I had so much fun putting, yeah, you know, the mix together for you. You know, I thought about, you know, what you would like as well. So I you know, had a couple little songs that I thought you would like too. So yes. excited for you to hear it. Listen, one of the beauties of doing a show on Triple R is that you have, you know, your favourite DJs making tailor-made mixes for you. Like all year <laughs> I've had like a bunch of people do some really cool mixes for me. Caucasian Opportunities did one. And just like all of these beautiful DJs have put together, because we haven't had gigs and stuff and so there's less musicians to speak to about upcoming shows, mm. I've had, you know, your little community out making mixes for the show, which has been so fun. So good. It's so good. Yeah, got to keep active, you know. <laughs> <laughs> keep the creative juices flowing. How has it been for you this year without, you know, being able to go out and really perform in front of crowds? You did Meredith and that was a pretty big deal. And then it just stopped. Yeah, literally. I was so, I was so lucky to be able to, play Golden Plains. That oh, was the last Golden gig, Plains, you know, yeah. I did. Same, 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 same thing. Same, 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 same. It's even in the same, <laughs> same place. Same. Yeah, no, literally. <laughs> but no, I was so hyped to be able to do that and so lucky because I feel like if it was a week later, it definitely would have got cancelled. But I sort of been the same as everyone else, mm. just been chilling, trying to stay creative and stuff. But also been a hard year for everyone, you know, with mm. everything going on. So got to keep it real. Yeah. You know, it's been some ups and downs, but overall lucky to be in Australia. Yep, yep, I feel you. It has been an intense year, but it has also been nice to be able to see everyone doing their thing, whether it's online or also knowing that people are kind of chilling, which is also like a good feeling that there's maybe a little bit less pressure to be all over things because nobody's really doing much. And so you can actually like embrace the relaxing time. Yeah, exactly. I've Definitely be embracing that <laughs> relaxation mode for sure <laughs> in there. So you have a new cassette mixtape out via Butter Sessions. Tell me a little bit about it and also where the proceeds for it are going. Yep, so got a new cassette mixtape out via Butter Sessions. So grateful to be working with them because, yeah, 100% of the proceeds will be going to Black Rainbow, which is an Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander-run LGBTQ organisation helping suicide prevention. So, yeah, really stoked to be able to give all the proceeds and help out a little bit. So 
shameless plug, mm-hmm. hop on Bandcamp, <laughs> purchase that thing. 100% of the proceeds going to Black Rainbow. And you get a, something a little cool out of it. Hopefully you like it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. you get a whole mix. It's not like nothing. You're getting a whole mix that you would have likely paid for anyway. So Exactly. <laughs> just give them an extra and I'm push. Not, yeah, I'm not going to lie, to be honest. I don't even really have a cassette tape to even play it. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's there. She'll, she'll be she'll be nice on my desk. Exactly. Cute. We take photos with her. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could talk to her. No, I listen. If you do have the means, definitely jump on Bandcamp and purchase this. You also have like a beautiful taste of Seafrim's skills. In just a moment, when we play this mix, tell me a little bit about the mix. Yeah, so I wanted to keep it live. I've got some tracks from my homie Swell, who's a Melbourne-based producer as well, and then. My girl, Malala, who's a new rapper on the scene. Second track in, listen out for that. She's definitely one to watch. But yeah, just a little fun one. A little bit of Afrobeat in there, something okay. for a reason. Thank you. Know? you. That's very <laughs> generous. Thank you. I was just waiting for it and you are going to deliver, so that's very exciting. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for making the mix. I better let you get back to work because, you know, the hustle yep. is real. Oh, no, the hustle is real. <laughs> And hopefully I can see you play at some point in the summer. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully see you soon. Yeah. See you soon. Thanks so much. All right. See you. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.